to rely upon those commentaries for your understanding of Jesus' life in our day would be kind of like relying on electrical engineering in the time of Edison when we're trying to send a spacecraft to Mars. It, it just isn't enough. There's more that we know now. By the way, I love that metaphor. Absolutely love it. Because sometimes we think the thinking has been done because it's been written about, but there's so much wonderful scholarship going on right now. Some people are afraid of scholarship and they think that it's bad. One of the things that I appreciate about working at BYU is that we take the position that we should be learning all the time and improving our understanding. And we have now a series of books that is out printed in the 21st century by modern, really well-trained New Testament scholars, edited by our friends uh, Thomas Wayman and Richard Holtzapfel, called The Life and Teachings of Jesus Christ in three volumes, which uh, relies on a, a two dozen wonderful scholars to bring Latter-day Saint knowledge about the life of Christ up into the 21st century. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture. Digging deeper and having a whole lot of fun. Learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. Hello, this is Laura Harris-Hales with LDS Perspectives Podcast, and I'm here today with Dr. Jeffrey R. Chadwick to discuss the dating of the birth of Christ. Jeffrey R. Chadwick is the BYU Jerusalem Center Professor of Archaeology and Near East Studies and also Professor of Religious Education at Brigham Young University. He is a senior fellow at the W.F. Albright Institute of Archaeological Research in Jerusalem and serves as senior field archaeologist and director of Upper City Excavations. I'm going to try to pronounce this for the Tel S. Safi Gath Archaeological Project in Israel. How did I do with that? You did great. That's exactly what we call it. Would you like to add anything else to your credentials? I'm just a more or less a regular guy that wound up being a professor of archaeology and religion. Didn't start out that way. Thought I would own a greenhouse, actually. But life took us in different directions, and it's been a great 35, 40 years teaching in the church, both here and in Israel. So I know a lot of Brigham Young University professors who spend a year in Jerusalem, but you were actually employed by the Jerusalem Center a long time ago, like 1982, wasn't it? I started teaching for the Jerusalem Center before we had a Jerusalem Center, back in the day when we had students at a kibbutz in the south of Jerusalem, which is called Ramat Rachel, which is still a favorite place that I visit and visit old friends there. In those days, I was just a contract teacher. I would contract for various programs, which they needed. Often they were in the summer. I was teaching seminary at the time. As time went by, I kept getting asked to return and to return. And uh, finally, uh, after I had completed my PhD in archaeology, they asked me to return for uh, a long period of time. And we moved the family over and began what essentially has been a, a career ever since, teaching on a very regular basis at the Jerusalem Center. I've taught probably 3,000 students there over a 30-year period, you know, 25 programs, and it's been a great thing to do. I'm going to tell you how I became interested in the dating at the birth of Christ. I was listening to a different podcast, and the podcaster announced that April 6th, BC 1, was not the birth date of Christ. 
And Did this, this shock you? It shocked me. I'm like, what? This is what I was taught from a young child. In fact, I remember telling the kids in my seven-year-old class when we were talking about Christmas, we celebrate it in December, but we know because of Revelation from Joseph Smith that it was really April 6th. And I got these really blank looks on their face like the woman is crazy. Jesus was born on Christmas. That actually gives me solace right now because I feel guilty because I told these poor kids wrong information. So what I did was go on the internet and you must have good SEO on your article because your article popped up and I read it and was intrigued and, and felt better about what I read. That's how I became interested in the dating of the birth of Christ. How did you become interested? Did it come as an outgrowth of your work in archaeology? Primarily, yeah. Uh, archaeology and Near Eastern studies. I was like any other seminary teacher during the 1970s and 80s. We just taught as a matter of course that Jesus had been born on April 6th, and this is because of the great respect that we all have for Elder Talmadge's book, Jesus the Christ, where he takes that very definite position that Jesus was born in 1 BC on April 6th, basing it on the phrase in Doctrine and Covenants section 20, which refers to the day on which the church was organized in 1830. It wasn't really until after I finished my PhD in archaeology and was working regularly in the ancient Near Eastern studies of the region that enough things came across my desk. I mostly work in, say, Iron and Bronze Age context. This is an Old Testament stuff, more or less. Although I teach New Testament all the time, I leave Roman period archaeology to colleagues who prefer mosaics rather than uh, ancient pottery. It just happened that I kept getting indications that suggested Jesus couldn't have been born in 1 BC. I mean, the biggest issue is that we all know Herod died in 4 BC. Uh, and Jesus well, was not born. all of us. All of us who study that period. All, all of us who work in the in the field. Uh, it's it's a it's a standard understanding that Herod died in four BC, and that just wouldn't work with a one BC birth date for Jesus, because of course uh, Matthew asserts that Jesus was born during the reign of Herod the Great, uh, very near the end of the reign of Herod the Great. That started it, but then the the real issue became. What about the rest of it? Could we say April 6th of 4 or 5 BC? And at a certain point, I thought, you know, I had to look at this and see what the evidence says. And when you start to look at something, when you finally cross over the line and say, let's dig this up, it always turns out to be different than you thought. I've never excavated as an archaeologist anything that I thought I was going to find. It always turned out to be different once we got into the soil. This one did too. The uh, date of the birth of Christ could not have been on April 6th in any year that we could target as a possible year of his birth. When I would celebrate Christmas as a child, knowing, quote, knowing that Christ's birth was April 6th, I would always think to myself, why did the Christian fathers choose December? It seems a bit random. Did that thought ever run across your head as you began your research? I never thought in terms of why did Christian fathers choose this. It was just what we grew up with, you know. Christmas is December 25th, and it's the greatest time of the year. But if you grow up Mormon, you grew up back in the 60s or 70s or whenever you grew up, basically being told with a nice smile that, well, you know, December isn't really Jesus' birthday. He was really born in April 6th. See, here's what it says in the gospel. And so we all kind of lived with that dichotomy that we loved the Christmas season, but April 6th had to be Jesus' birthday. And 
you know, I grew up with that. I was comfortable with it and until literally until the 1990s when I started to look deeper. How did Christmas get identified with December is basically a fourth century story. After the reign of Constantine, it was about the year 354, as I recall, that the Bishop of Rome decided that a common tradition that had grown up among Christians, which is not documented by the literature of the time, uh, say by Eusebius, the church historian, but that a common practice would be officialized, more or less. About that time, he pronounced, uh, Liberius, the Bishop of Rome, whom we call the Pope, that Jesus' birthday would be celebrated on December 25th. No one was maintaining that was his real birth date, although the tradition of celebrating there in winter certainly has an origin somewhere in someone suspected he must have been born in the winter. But it was more or less chosen because it was a convenient day on which to celebrate. And we do that with holidays all the time. We celebrate our holidays not when they happen, but when they're convenient. It was a practical decision to find a winter day that could serve as a day to celebrate this great event, you know, the birth of the Savior of mankind. And weren't there already a couple holidays being celebrated about that time? Roman pagan holidays? Well, from the third century, you had the birthday of the sun, which is was called Sol Invictus, which had been celebrated as a pagan holiday on the first day after the winter solstice, which the sun appeared slightly longer in the sky than it had before. In other words, you get to the shortest day of the year, which is around the 21st or 22nd of December. And then three days later on the 25th, you could tell that the sun was in the sky for a minute more if you used your hourglasses very carefully. In the Roman Empire, that was celebrated as the day of the sun's birth, and it would just grow up throughout the year. The interesting thing is that that works very nice with Christian symbolism. People often say, well, what a terrible thing to choose a pagan holiday and then celebrate Jesus' birthday on it. But if you understand that the New Testament uses the sun, and particularly the sunrise, as a symbol of Christ's coming, as a symbol of Christ's being, it makes perfect sense to utilize a pagan day about the sun and then to transfer real religious meaning to it. Since the tradition existed that Jesus had been born in early winter, this was as good a day as any. No one maintains December 25th was the birthday of Christ, but the evidence points to early winter. And since there was a day that celebrated the sun in early winter, why not use it to celebrate the sunrise from on high, the sun, S-O-N, of God? And then in a separate Christian tradition that was popular in the Near East, they had the Feast of the Epiphany, which was January 6th, and that's where we get the 12 days of Christmas from that December 25th to June 6th. That was another thing I always wondered about. Are the 12 days of Christmas before or after Christmas? The first day of Christmas is December 25th. The second day is December 26th. And in some countries, they celebrate the second day of Christmas. Uh, In Europe, very often you'll see Christmas celebrated for two days. And and then it went through till, till January 5th. And those were the 12 days of Christmas we sing about. Uh, The real difference is the difference between Western or Catholic Christmas and Orthodox Christmas. And that's not really counted so much anymore. But in certain places in the Middle East, uh, in the Orthodox churches in Jerusalem and Bethlehem, they will celebrate Orthodox Christmas for 12 and now even 14 since we've gone a little bit days after, after December 25th. And so we have two Christmases in Jerusalem. We're going to go back to talk about these two competing traditions. We have the traditional Christmas 
for the rest of Christianity. And then we have this subset of lifelong members of the church who know that the real date of Christ's birth is April 6, B.C. 1. How did that develop? Talmadge didn't, out of the blue, pick that date. Can you trace this tradition throughout LDS thought? It actually originates in the 1800s prior to Elder Talmadge. This is something that starts to bubble up in the 1800s in some of the Christian commentaries, which are mostly Protestant. And these are the commentaries on which Latter-day Saints were relying and the commentaries which Elder Talmadge uh, quotes frequently. The, the chief of these was uh, Frederick Farrar's commentary, The Life of Christ. And then there are, were other works by Alfred Adersheim and others. There's not any nice way to put this, but there, there was a rather anti-Catholic feeling among uh, Protestant scholars in the 1800s. And the idea that Jesus, you know, was born on Christmas, Christ's Mass, was not popular with all of the Protestant denominations. And so even prior to Elder Talmadge's time, we see in certain books that wrote about the life of Christ a tendency to move his birth to the springtime, to have it coincide more Easterish, if you will. And out of that came a lot of frankly, myths like the lambing season that we talk so much about, which has no basis in reality. These were the types of commentaries that influenced Latter-day Saint leaders around the year 1900 when Elder Talmadge was asked to write his remarkable LDS-themed work on the life of Christ. He looked to the spring for the birth date and saw in section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants a passage which seemed to him to give a date in the spring. Uh, Section 20 verse 1 says that the church arose on the 6th of April, 1,830 years since the coming of the Lord Jesus in the flesh. We understand now, due to the Joseph Smith Papers Project, that that was simply a way of saying the church was established on this date that everyone understands is our common dating system. But Elder Talmadge took that very literally and presented it as if April 6th of 1830 were exactly 1,830, 365 day years since the birth of Jesus. He stated that rather emphatically in his book, Jesus the Christ, and April 6th became a hit with Mormons from 1915 onward, even though no one in the 1800s among the general authorities had posited that Jesus was born in April. Joseph Smith said nothing on the subject. Brigham Young, nothing. The rest of the presidents of the church, down to Lorenzo Snow, said nothing on this. There was one general authority, Orson Pratt, who had a unique count for the life of Jesus. And in a couple of different conference talks that are recorded in the Journal of Discourses, he is on record as saying he thought Jesus was born in 4 BC, on April 11th, as I recall, not April 6th. But no one in the 1800s was looking at section 20 as pointing to Jesus' birthday on April 6th. This is a unique contribution of Elder Talmadge, while it's easy to see what his intents were, it turns out that it doesn't it doesn't course reality. I've passed around folklore myself, so I can't judge. <laughs> but a lot of the folklore is quite comforting, like this is. So we have Jesus the Christ written in 1914, and it's pretty much accepted by the general membership. After that time, did any general authorities comment on that date? No. No one directly challenged Elder Talmadge on that date. Some people simply produced their own studies. President J. Reuben Clark wrote a very thoughtful work on the life of Christ 
called Our Lord of the Gospels, which, like Jesus the Christ, was a publication of the church in the 1950s. There he took the position that Jesus was born in winter, either in December of 5 BC or perhaps early January of 4 BC. And he didn't challenge Elder Talmadge at all. He simply laid out that he thought the evidence pointed more toward that. Elder McConkie, when he produced his series called The Mortal Messiah, looked at both the reasoning of Elder Talmadge and President Clark and seemed to favor President Clark's position. This was no insult to uh, Elder Talmadge. It just means that Elder McConkie did not see this question as having been solved by the remarkable book of Elder Talmadge. But still, Elder Talmadge's analysis persisted over these more recent ones. Why do you think we're in the speculation zone that that was the case? Oh, there's no speculation necessary. Elder Talmadge's work was made a standard of church education. It was a standard for missionaries to read and to train on. President Clark's book, Our Lord of the Gospels, was used in the 1950s and 60s, but it more or less disappears from sight. And Jesus the Christ, as you proceed through the 60s and 70s, became the gold standard for learning about the life of Christ for uh, for Latter-day Saints. It was, after all, commissioned by the First Presidency. Uh, it was written in the temple. It was written by an apostle. It was It was meant to be the first systematic treatment of the life of Christ by an apostolic authority, and it has tremendous value, even though a lot of the material that Elder Talmadge relied upon was flawed material of Protestant commentaries produced in the 1800s. Now, they were well-meaning, and I think infused with the spirit of Christian generosity and teaching, but some of the facts were just not correct. To rely upon those commentaries for your understanding of Jesus' life in our day would be kind of like relying on electrical engineering in the time of Edison when we're trying to send a spacecraft to Mars. It, it just isn't enough. There's more that we know now. By the way, I love that metaphor. Absolutely love it. Because sometimes we think the thinking has been done because it's been written about, but there's so much wonderful scholarship going on right now. Some people are afraid of scholarship and they think that it's bad. One of the things that I appreciate about working at BYU is that we take the position that we should be learning all the time and improving our understanding. And we have now a series of books that is out printed in the 21st century by modern, really well-trained New Testament scholars, edited by our friends uh, Thomas Wayman and Richard Holtzapfel, called The Life and Teachings of Jesus Christ in three volumes, which uh, relies on a, a two dozen wonderful scholars to bring Latter-day Saint knowledge about the life of Christ up into the 21st century. And these are you know, on sale at your bookstore. You can get them. You can use them alongside uh, Jesus the Christ. And in fact, there's a new edition of Jesus the Christ that was issued last year in, on the 100th anniversary of the book by, by some of my colleagues, where the text of, of Elder Talmadge is presented with notes and explanatory items saying why we understand things differently now than we understood them in 1915. So we have not failed to progress. It's just that a lot of people don't know we've progressed and are still relying on their 1915 editions. And in that, the misconception that Jesus was born in April of 1 BC persists, and I suspect that it will for some time. It'll, it'll take another generation 
or what we know now to kind of work itself into the overall teaching in the Sunday schools of the church. But it will happen because that's the way that we are. Before we proceed, I just have to tell you a little story. I told my mother that April 6th was not the birth date of Christ, and she is getting used to me breaking down this folklore, and she's getting pretty tired of it. So she said, can I just think of April 6th as being his birthday? And I said, yes, Mom, you can. Just don't tell anyone, okay? <laughs> you, you know, it's it's not going to go immediately away, and it's not a bad thing. It's just not accurate, okay? It doesn't really matter when you get right down to it what anybody's birthday is. It's what they contribute. But if you want to know when was Jesus born, it's probably going to be in December of the year 5 B.C. That's just where the evidence points. Let's start there and go back to the topic of the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about how you started your research, your methodology, and then we'll do a drum roll, your conclusion? Of course, you can read the article in BYU Studies of December 2010, and it's very, uh, very nicely laid out there. And We'll just um, do the brief version. Yeah, but the brief version is that there are four or five indicators that have to be taken into account when you're going to determine when could Jesus have been born. And the first one that I ran into many years ago as I was going through grad school and working archaeology was the reality that Herod the Great died in April of 4 B.C., probably in early April of 4 B.C. And this is a rock-solid historical date that's not connected to any New Testament literature or anything else. Herod died in 4 B.C. We all know this. And Matthew 2 asserts that Jesus was born when Herod was still alive. It's that same Herod that sent, the, that sent his, uh, his agents to Bethlehem to kill the babies there. Of course, when Joseph and Mary are in Egypt to avoid that, after they get to Egypt, they're told that Herod has passed away. So Jesus has to have been born very late in the reign of Herod the Great, but he can't have been born any time after around the middle of January at the most of 4 BC. And, and I prefer December for reasons of giving a wider window. The reason for that is that after Jesus' birth, there is a six-week period that occurs before he is taken to the temple because Mary had to accomplish a period of purification for 40 days. So on the 41st or 42nd day, she and Joseph go from Bethlehem to the temple in Jerusalem. And there in Luke 2, Jesus is acknowledged by Simeon and Anna, etc. And then we bump to the Matthew 2 story where the wise men appear, having come from the east, and their visit to Bethlehem is followed very shortly by Joseph and Mary leaving Bethlehem. Well, they can't have left Bethlehem before going to the temple, as they did in Luke 2, which means they leave Bethlehem for Egypt sometime in the seventh week after Jesus' birth. And that's the earliest that you can get it. Now, very probably there were a few more weeks involved there. It might not have been on the day after the temple visit that the wise men show up. It could have been a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. Difficult to say. Travel time from uh, Persian border to Jerusalem is about six weeks uh, on land, anciently. And so if the wise men left immediately upon seeing the sign of Jesus' birth, they would have arrived in Jerusalem six to seven weeks later, gone to uh, see the baby, perhaps the seventh or eighth week. If they saw the sign and took a week to prepare for their journey, or two weeks to prepare for their journey, then you would set that off by another couple of weeks. But it's fairly clear that the wise men came after seeing the sign. They made haste. 
They didn't wait a year or two after the sign to go to Jerusalem. And they, that's something we've heard before, too. Well, because Herod has the children killed two years old and under, people have asserted that Jesus might have been as much as two when he when he's taken to Egypt. This, I don't think, works out with the text of Matthew that asserts that the wise men are fairly anxious to make their trip to Jerusalem after seeing the sign of his birth. I would say that you're probably about seven to eight weeks out from Jesus' birth for the wise men to arrive. And then after Mary and Joseph go to Egypt, which is probably sometime in March, you have Herod's death in early April, and that's the story of Matthew 2. But that's the thing. Herod's death is the number one issue. Jesus can't have been born after Herod died in April of 4 BC and has to have been born at least 10, 12 weeks prior to Herod's death. I think it's very likely that he was born in late December. And then we have some clues, don't we, to when he was born from the New Testament because of when Mary conceived. Isn't that correct? Well, in my opinion, the way that I read uh, Luke chapter 1 is that Mary is visited by the angel in the month of Adar, which would be the sixth month of uh, of the secular count of the Jewish year at the time of Joseph and Mary. And Adar would be sometime in March, okay, which means that it's not long before Passover. And then having been visited by the angel, it says that Mary goes to Judea. Well, she wouldn't go alone. She was a very young woman, and people didn't travel in that manner. They probably went to Judea for Passover, where she meets Elizabeth, and she's already pregnant. It seems to me that the Annunciation likely took place in March, and nine months later would place the birth in December. That's not agreed to by everybody. They don't see the same thing that I do in that passage. They think that the term sixth month is is referring only to the period of Elizabeth's pregnancy from the earlier part of Luke 1. I think actually that it's a coincidence, and both things are being reported there, because it's a very demonstrable way of speaking of that period of the time, uh, that is to say of the springtime, as being the sixth month after the beginning of the Jewish New Year. So I think that the Annunciation probably is nine months before December as well. But the real issue about trying to find when Jesus would be born is to place his adulthood in historical context. You can say, well, Herod the Great died in, in April of 4 BC, but what does that tell us? Jesus is born sometime before April of 4 BC. Was he born in 5 BC, 6 BC, 7 BC, 8 BC? And could any of those have been an April 6th? Was the year just wrong in our classic by Elder Talmadge? Could we get April 6th of 5 or 6 or 7 BC? And the answer is no, for the other reasons. Number one, Herod's death. But number two, Jesus has to have died sometime. He has to have died during the rule of Pontius Pilate, who ruled Judea from 26 to 36 AD. Jesus has to have died after a ministry of at least two years. His ministry cannot have begun earlier than the year 28, because uh, that was the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. And so you have that mentioned in Luke 3, that John the Baptist starts his preaching, and then shortly after Jesus comes around uh, in the 15th year of Tiberius. There's another issue, and that is that you have to have Jesus' death take place in a year where Passover is no more than two days prior to Sunday. And since we can, through astronomical studies, understand when the full moon occurred in any spring month of any year back then, this is all a matter of math and astronomy, we know that only in the year 27, in the year 30, 
and in the year 33, does Passover occur on a Friday or a Saturday within a three-day window of Sunday? Why a three-day window of Sunday? Well, Jesus dies and is resurrected three days later on Sunday, which means he dies on the eve of Passover. He can't have died any earlier than Thursday, and which means he can't have died at a Passover that was any earlier than Friday or Saturday. The big question then becomes, if you can pick out three years for when Jesus might have died, which one is likely? Well, you can rule out 27, because Jesus couldn't have started preaching till at least 28, because of Tiberius' 15th year. The year 30 looks very good to everyone, and that's the one that I advocate. But could you say 33? Could you say that Jesus died in 33 on Friday before the Saturday Passover in 33? As it turns out, you can't. Why? Well, because of the Book of Mormon. Now, if you are anywhere else in Christianity, you don't know exactly how long Jesus lived. You kind of think, well, he began his ministry about 30 years old. That's what Luke says. He began to be about 30 years old. And he preached for a couple of years, maybe, according to some scholars, one, according to the majority, around two, according to some tradition, maybe three. Pretty sure it's three. That's what I grew up with. Yeah, not going to be. It's going to be two. Um, and there's where the evidence goes, too. But uh, the, the issue is that uh, if you take the Book of Mormon, which is peculiar to us, but which we believe gives a, an authentic account of things, Jesus dies at age 33. He's probably in the early part of being 33, meaning 33 in two or three months. You know, he's not 34 yet. He can't be 34 Book of Mormon doesn't allow him to die at age 34 because the sign of his death is given in the beginning of the 30 and 4th year after his birth. And so he's 33 and maybe, you know, a little bit, 3-4 months I would I would guess, but he can't be 34. So having this 33 year death age for Jesus and knowing that Herod the Great died in 4 BC, you have to figure out, okay, where is 33 years for Jesus life going to fit? And it only fits if you place Jesus' death in 30 and speculate that Jesus is born three months before Herod died, making him 33 years and three months old at his death. And that's how it works. I mean, it's just a matter of here is all the evidence, and it lines up only in one way. It can't be interpreted in any other way. You can throw out a piece of evidence and say, okay, we're still unsure. But which are you going to throw out? You can't throw out the rule of Pontius Pilate. We know that historically. You can't throw out the 15th year of Tiberius. You can't throw out the Sunday resurrection. Okay? You can't throw out the death of Herod. The rest of Christianity doesn't accept the Book of Mormon, but you absolutely have to rely on the Book of Mormon as a Latter-day Saint. We are in duty bound to consider that as authoritative real scripture. With those five considerations, the death of Herod, the rule of Pontius Pilate, the 15th year of Tiberius, Passover within uh, two days of Sunday, and Jesus' death at age 33, you got yourself more or less secure with a death in April of 30 and a birth a couple of months before March of 4 BC, meaning probably January or December of 5 BC. And I gravitate toward December because of the notion that probably Mary had visit from the angel in March and would have given birth nine months later in December. So I've read both of your articles on the birth of Christ and also on the death of Christ. And the thing about the article on the death of Christ, there is some overlap. I loved the photo you showed of 
a manger of the time that you found. This totally digresses from what we're talking about, but that's another thing. We think of this wooden bassinet, and then I look at that sandstone. I'm sure as an author, it's going to really hurt your feelings to say the most impressive thing about that article for me was that picture you took. That, that's actually uh, what I had hoped to see. And it, it's actually limestone. They would use sandstone uh, mangers maybe in southern Jordan, but around Jerusalem and Bethlehem, it's limestone. But that's what they made their furniture of, uh, the stone. This isn't discussed in the BYU Studies article. I wrote a popular book entitled Stone Manger, the untold story of the first Christmas, in which we more or less, I was going to entitle it The Archaeology of Christmas, and I thought no one would be interested. Uh, I don't think I would have. (laughs) The Archaeology of Christmas, boy, that's got to be a biggie. But actually, it's an archaeologist telling the story of Christmas and putting it into its real context. You know, uh, I point out in in the first chapter of my book that a lot of tradition has built around the Christmas story, but in reality, there were not any wise men there on the night Jesus was born. There were no sheep. I mean, the shepherds arrived, but they didn't bring their sheep with them. And there was probably no hay in the manger. Hay was not a way that people fed animals in Judea of that age. In the the winter, you simply took them out to feed in the fields. You didn't grow hay or gather hay. The manger itself wasn't even a feeding trough. It was a watering trough because you had to have a a, a trough for water because the animals needed water on a regular basis in the place they were confined, even when they weren't being taken out into the field to graze. There wasn't even a stable. In my opinion, Luke 2 does not mention a stable. There is no stable in any of the text. Uh, A stable is imagined because of the presence of a manger in the text, but really the only archaeological artifact, if I may use that term, in the Christmas story is the manger. And the manger would have been made of stone, not wood, because things were made of stone in that land, not wood. And so that became the title photograph uh, for the the title page photograph of my book, Stone Manger, The Untold Story of the First Christmas. And from there, kind of using the manger as a muse, we go back to Nazareth and Mary and Joseph, whom we call Miriam and Yosef, using the actual Hebrew pronunciations of their names, and take them through what would be the realistic setting of the story that's told in Luke and Matthew about their marriage and their journey to Bethlehem and the birth of Jesus and being laid in a manger cut from stone. It was a a kind of a fun project to do, to write this book. I wrote it several years ago after researching it for decades. It's now available and, and people have fun with it and are often surprised and even gasping at the number of traditions and notions about Christmas they grew up with that they find out weren't really what happened back in Joseph and Mary days. But we get a lot of nice comments saying, I actually like this better. I like knowing what really happened. I like it better. And that's maybe the fun part of the book for me. It would be for me, too. Most people do like the truth better than a nice story. And we'll put in the show notes a reference to that book, as well as a series of articles I just want to briefly mention. We've talked about two of the articles you wrote. There's been a friendly back and forth on a scholarly level about the birth of Christ, which I find really refreshing, because I'm sure Dr. Chadwick wouldn't want you to replace 
Elder Talmadge's hypothesis with his hypothesis without researching it. So I want to say there are some other opinions out there. We'll put links to them. Thomas, well, maybe I maybe I could do this because these are friends of mine, you know. Well, exactly. We'll just put links to Thomas Wayman, Lincoln Blumo, and a couple of articles. Plus, this great book you just just yeah. referenced. You see the evolution of the discussion. I think that's so healthy. It's they it's have, what we do. It's what we yes. do as scholars. You know, I wrote uh, for BYU Studies the article dating the birth of Jesus Christ, which appeared in 2010. And then my colleagues, Lincoln Blumel and Thomas Wayman, who are New Testament scholars uh, extraordinaire, wrote a uh, response article entitled, When Was Jesus Born? And published it in 2012 in BYU Studies, in which they say, well, wait a minute, let's look at this stuff a little closer. And so we disagreed on some things. Uh, I wrote not a response to their article, but essentially just uh, presented additional information to buttress my own models in the article uh, dating the Death of Jesus Christ, which was published by BYU Studies in 2015. And we just have a friendly back and forth. It's, it's what scholars do. We present models for things, and I present models based on information that I think is correct. And if someone says, well, I'm not sure I agree with your model, I, I listen to them, and then I present them with more evidence to say, here's why I think I, I got it right the first time. And it's what we do. We're good friends and we get along very well. And I appreciate them very much. I think that makes members uncomfortable sometimes, but it's such a healthy dynamic to have in scholarship, checking each other, checking yourself after someone has brought something to your attention. Yeah. You know, we actually do this in the church and they call it correlation. Okay. We're True. always checking each other. And it's good because, you know, it, it doesn't allow us to get too far off the track. In conclusion, in five sentences or less, can you just sum up what you would like to share with our listeners about the birth of Christ? Well, if I was to do this quickly, it is my understanding that Jesus was born in the window of time that we refer to as the Christmas season. Now, to me, that means a lot because we've celebrated Christmas all our life. And having grown up thinking, well, maybe Jesus wasn't born at Christmas time is kind of a dissonance that, that exists in some Latter-day Saint hearts. My research suggests there's no need for that because he probably was born in December. We don't know the day, but certainly within those weeks that we call the Christmas season. And to me, that helps to make the holiday bright. I have a real testimony that Jesus Christ was born and came into this world to give us the greatest gift that can be given, the, the love of God and the atonement that is necessary for us to re-enter His presence. Celebrating that at Christmas time is a great thing that we do annually. And to me, Christmas is all year long. But that's it, I believe, in the Christmas season. Thank you for taking your time to talk to us about this fun subject at this special time. It's very nice to be with you. Thanks. Goodbye. Here's what's coming up on the next episode of the LDS Perspectives podcast. I would say if I were giving a talk somewhere, I would encourage members of the church to come to church, learn what they can there, but realize that they're probably going to be frustrated if they want to go deep, but then go home and dig in all you want with anything. Read deeply, read broadly, study, do whatever you can to inform yourself. I really believe that the Sunday experience was not meant to be all-encompassing experience for us as far as gospel learning is concerned. We really have to learn to be self-reliant gospel learners and learn much on our own. Sunday is not going to do it for us. 
LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone, and LDS Perspectives podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS Church leaders, policies, or practices.